Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. And welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. In this episode, we have Dr. Cassidy. She is a longtime friend of mine, and I'm so excited she is on the show today. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in postpartum wellness for the whole family. She hosts her own top-rated podcast, Holding Space, and offers e-courses for couples preparing for postpartum and for moms who are in the thick of it. Hello, Dr. Cassidy. Hi, Kim. I am so excited to do this with you and to connect with you and to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Well, for all of you that don't know, um, Dr. Cassidy actually had me on her um, podcast, Holding Space, a couple of years ago as a guest, and we had so much fun together. We thought we would reunite and um, switch roles, and now she's going to be a guest on my podcast today. So thank you for being here. Yeah, I wish that we could do it in person, but you know, COVID, pandemic. So I'm glad that we have virtual options to, to be able to connect. Well, and it's fun. I mean, the the fact that we have this type of technology these days to be able to do something like this, I think is is really neat that we can do this, even though we're only about an hour away from each other, but we can yep. still do it, you know, online and, you know, and still get the work done. So yep. um, it's great. Those, those resources are out there. Um, but what I want to talk about today is postpartum. I know that's your expertise and uh, you know, I just, especially during the pandemic, you know, I can see the, the the headlines now, postpartum in the pandemic. You know, I know you just had a baby and um, tell everyone how old your youngest is right now. Yeah. So my youngest is six months. Uh, she just turned six months last week and she's napping right now. And my um, mother-in-law who is fully vaccinated um, is over helping. Uh, we're so grateful to her for that. She's a nurse, so she's a, an essential worker. And we're just so grateful to have that help now. Um, and my two older kids are nine and six. And so we've been navigating um, between in-person school and then distance learning. My oldest is home distance learning right now. And my six-year-old is doing in-person learning. So we're just, you know, <laughs> navigating all the different transitions um, and just kind of, you know, re-envisioning what we thought this postpartum year was going to look like, as I know many other parents are as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's it's definitely been a year. I can't believe we're almost almost already a year into it. Um, when, as people say, the world shut down, yeah, um, was just you know just shortly um, going to be a month away. And you know, so not only were you pregnant during the pandemic, um, you've also experienced postpartum during the pandemic. And do you think there was a part of that that was um, that was more difficult for you? 
to have a baby um, in, in being um, maybe more cautious on different things that you did, places you went um, and so forth. Um, because let's say, you know, the, the babies don't, can't wear masks. Um, right. They don't wear masks when they've gone to public. So how did that, how does the pandemic played a role in, you know, your postpartum journey thus far? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the first piece was um, when we had to kind of reimagine what our birth was going to look like and our hospital stay. So this is my third baby. And, um, you know, I, I, I specialize in postpartum um, and that my specialization really came from my first experience with postpartum where we had um, an, an unexpected um, traumatic birth experience. Um, I had some very rigid ideas of what I wanted that first birth to look like, and it didn't. And so that was um, really challenging. And then postpartum, I experienced postpartum anxiety, and my partner actually experienced postpartum depression. So once we healed from that, that is sort of when I really decided, okay, I, I really want to support other families because I'm a therapist and I was so not prepared. I, I was prepared for some elements of birth, um, but not for processing how things can go awry. And then postpartum just really rocked us as a couple and as individuals. And so from there, um, I went on to pursue a PhD and conducted research um, looking particularly at the experience of partners um, and dads in postpartum. And then after that, did some specialized training and really started working with these families. And so I went into this third birth so much more prepared than I was with the first. Um, But, you know, there was nothing covered in these trainings about how to have a baby during a pandemic. (laughs) And so there were still things that, you know, we had to kind of reevaluate and kind of process such as, you know, I was really looking forward to having our kids there to visit us after the baby was born in the hospital. Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot in our postpartum courses about the element of preparing ahead of time to have support postpartum, right? Like people that can actually come into your home to help feed you, nourish you, to be there so that you can take a nap or get rest or to come and do household chores for you or take your older kids out, um, you know, to keep them occupied, to stay the night with you so that you can get some restorative rest um, and they can kind of help with the baby in the middle of the night. So all of these things are so key. We know that support is one of the biggest protective factors for families postpartum. And I also knew from having a really difficult transition from our first to our second, meaning my my oldest had a really hard time um, sort of in that transition when we had our second child, our son. I knew that one of the ways that we could support that was to really include our oldest, our older children in the process, right? And having them come visit in the hospital and having them come to our, um, to my doctor appointments. So a lot of these things had to change. And, you know, this, this, like we were all ther- like professionals and parents were all going through this at the same time, um, trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to rethink some of these things? And, you know, I think that what, what I ended up having to do, um, personally is to really take a step back and acknowledge the things that I was grieving instead of just kind of white knuckling through it, which sometimes as someone who's a struggling, per- you know, a, a, sorry, a recovering perfectionist and a struggling 
striving good enough is. I'm somebody who really likes to have a plan and to be prepared. Um, but sometimes that can also lead me to just kind of white knuckle through the feelings, right? Um, the more vulnerable feelings. And so one thing that I really had to do was slow down and let myself feel the grief um, for what I was hoping that experience was going to look like. And for, you know, okay, so at first I need to feel my feelings and like let myself acknowledge that part of me that's really just sad and angry that like I'm having to kind of rethink what this is going to look like. Because once I allowed myself to be in that space, those parts of me were also able to acknowledge the things that were really important to me that I felt like I was losing. And so then from there, I could get more creative in terms of, okay, it might not look exactly how I wanted it to look. For instance, my kids, my older kids aren't going to be able to come to uh, my OBGYN appointments or to be able to see the ultrasounds or to hear the heartbeat and really have this big transition be real to them through that. But what I can do is have my partner FaceTime them while we're in, while we're, while we're in those appointments and to, you know, FaceTime while we're in the hospital. Um, and you know what also like acknowledging the grief allowed me to do is it created space for how this, these things that were unexpected were actually okay in some ways, meaning the fact that we didn't have a ton of visitors or our older kids visiting us while we were in the hospital, it actually was kind of nice. And that was unexpected. Like it was this opportunity for my partner and I to really get rest because we didn't have visitors coming in all the time, um, to rest when we could, but also just to really have that really special time with each other and bond with our baby. Right. Um, And And then, you know, in terms of postpartum and still knowing that we want it, we needed support in terms of, you know, having people support us with nourishing meals and, you know, help around the house and help with the older kids. We just had to find really creative ways to to do that. Right. Um, and so that might look like having, you know, a lot of people sent us um, meal deliveries. Right. Or they dropped off. That's good. Um, But also, you know, we. What we set boundaries around what we felt comfortable with in terms of health and safety. And if people were going to come in and help us, which we wanted and needed, and we also knew that they wanted to do, um, you know, people that, you know, some of our family, family members. And so we would discuss like, okay, th- this is a plan. If you're, if you're going to come into our quarantine circle, right into our pandemic pod, this is what is really important to us in terms of the behaviors that they're engaging in. Um, and, and we would just have those really open dialogues. And we had these conversations before the baby was born. Um, and the reason is because when you're sleep deprived and you're in it and you're like navigating becoming a food source and you're the, the challenges of breastfeeding and the, and the up and down emotions that can come during that postpartum period for everybody. Um, it's really hard to have these really important boundary conversations and to ask for help to even know what it is that you need help with, like when you're just right. so sleep deprived. So doing these, having these conversations and coming up with these plans, um, you know, beforehand were just really critical. Um, and yeah. And I think that, you know, it's been hard in the sense that like, I know how much I love 
in that postpartum year, going to mommy groups and getting outside. And we've, I've just, we've just had to be more creative. Like I am still getting outside, but it's in going on, it's going on walks, right? Or if I am going to meet up with somebody, it's going outside and doing a distance walk, you know, um, it's doing lots of FaceTime. It's finding virtual resources and virtual communities to connect with. Um, I just, I really, really, Kim, I really feel for the parents who are going through this for the first time or second time and maybe, you know, and, and haven't prepared for these things, um, and are just, I just, I know that this, the postpartum community right now is feeling so isolated and I am really curious and scared to see what the numbers are going to look like when we look back and we research how many moms and partners were struggling, um, and birth parents were struggling during this period of time with depression, anxiety, and not getting the support that they really needed and just the impact of the pandemic. Gosh, I just, it's going to be, I really hope that we do the research one day and see how it's impacted these families and then, you know, continue to follow up and, and support these families. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've seen it in, you know, my own practice and um, just with friends and people that I know that have had babies during this time. And um, it's just been um, quite a journey for them. You know, a lot of the same similarities, things that you've mentioned. And, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit, I'm going to go back um, a quick second and and address one thing. And then I want to talk a little bit about your ideas on how um, these moms can cope, you know, maybe some ideas of what they can do, some of the creative ways that you've um, been able to connect with the outside world and not feel so socially isolated. Um, but before we go into that, um, you mentioned something. I know I had a similar experience, especially with my first and even my second. I had a very, um, very particular, I know you use the word rigid, um, idea of what type of birth I wanted to have. Um, mm-hmm. And that didn't happen both times <laughs> with both of my children. So what do you suggest for women who don't have the kind of birth that they wanted and are in sort of a grieving kind of maybe even a guilt um, period postpartum? Yeah. Yeah. And this is relevant for, for someone who identifies as a woman or for somebody who's giving birth and doesn't identify as a woman, like birth, birth absolutely is an intense, intense experience. And what I know about myself is that when I, what I've learned about myself, I should say, because again, this is, I'm always a work in progress, right? As we all are, um, is that I, when I, when fear pops up for me or anxiety pops up or when something pops up that I can't control, right? And there's so many elements of birth that we just can't control, right? Like when the baby's going to come, like we Absolutely. don't always know when that's going to be, um, or what, how the birth, how the birth is going to go. So when I can't control something, Mm -hmm. I will try to find control. And like what that looked like for me with my first birth was in coming up with a, was with coming up with a very rigid birth plan. Mm -hmm. And um, what that also looked like though for me was that I ended up hiring a doula who shared similar perspective that I, that I did in terms of what birth should look like, quote unquote should. Right. And, um, and that was a huge misstep for me because this was a person who, um, doulas are incredible and having that support is so amazing. Um, but I also had somebody in the room who also had a, a, a very, um, rigid, uh, 
fixed view of what birth could look like. And, and, and how, and part of my trauma in the birth was that not only did all of that, not all of my rigid ideas, not, not come true. Um, but when I was being wheeled away to have a belly birth, a cesarean, um, the shame that I saw mm-hmm. in my doula's face became a huge part of that trauma for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ended up leaving and she wasn't there for the belly birth for postpartum. And that just, that became a huge part of my trauma. Um, I share about my birth stories on my own podcast and, uh, I, I dive deep more, more deeply into sort of how I kind of healed from that experience for anybody who's listening and interested in hearing more about that. Um, but in terms of preparing for birth, one of the things that we walk our um, couples through in our prepared postpartum course is really, you know, beginning to sort of rethink how we think about birth. Like instead of having um, this sort of rigid plan, let's actually take time to hone in on what are your values around your birth. So for instance, for me, safety is safety and security and support were really important. Like the three S's were like Uh really important values for me around my birth. Now, if I had connected to those values instead of like the outcome of what I wanted the outcome of my birth to look like in terms of like having a vaginal birth unmedicated, for instance, if I had instead connected to the values of support, feeling supported, feeling heard. Um, so feeling like I have agency, um, and feeling like I have a voice, feeling like I am keep, I'm safe and my baby is safe. Um, if I had just connected to those values, what could have had, like what those values can do in those moments is become like your GPS. So when things, uh, when things go or are out of your control and there are a couple of options put in front of you or something doesn't go the way that you had hoped or expected, those values can come in and help you decide, okay, with this value in mind, what are some questions that I want to ask my provider right now in terms of my options and what decision do I want to make that honors my values, but is also flexible because there are so many elements of birth that when we hold on to rigidity, um, can really, can really lead to the, the experience being traumatic for a variety of ways or feeling like we don't have control, um, or, or just feeling unheard or feeling like, um, we can't, we, we couldn't trust our body in those situations or feeling disconnected from our body. And so I think that tuning into our values can really help sort of create an experience where you are able to be flexible, um, while also honoring what's important to you and being able to look back on the experience and process it in a way where you recognize that you honor those parts of yourself. Um, even if it was hard, even if there were really intense, um, moments that were, were difficult or that were unexpected or were scary. Um, Absolutely. yeah, I love that. I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that's so insightful and I know I struggled, like I said, um, I had a, I had a doula and I had a very, um, I wanted a natural birth and I had a very um, specific idea in mind of what it was supposed to look like. And after 36 hours of labor, um, I ended up um, not dilating at all. And um, my, um, you know, contractions were pretty back to back and super intense. And, uh, you know, my doctor um, said, you know, we, we need to do a C-section. And I just, I went, um, you know, somewhat of a similar, you know, kind of mindful experience that you're describing. And, 
Um, but it took me a long time, especially postpartum, you know, when my hormones were off kilter and, um, I was much more emotional, um, in those first couple months, I felt like I was a failure of a mom mm-hmm. and that my body failed and that I, yeah. my body, you know, was a failure. And so the second time around, I got, got another doula and I said, well, this time I'm going to have a V-back. I'm going to prove to myself and my body mm-hmm. and, you know, the world that I can have a baby vaginally. And, um, it didn't happen the second time either. After almost 20 hours of labor, the same thing happened. My body just wouldn't dilate for whatever reason. You know, I I may never know that reason. And that was something I had to sit well with postpartum was being okay with not knowing why it didn't happen Mm -hmm. and knowing that I did everything in my power to make it happen. Um, and it just didn't happen. So I ended up having two C-sections. Um, but the, at the end of the day, I have two beautiful, healthy children. And that is what I've held on to. And the second time, I let it go much easier than the first time. Um, but it definitely was a process. And I definitely needed support to get through that. Yeah, I've had now three belly births. And my second belly birth, we did um, we did attempt for a VBAC. Um, but I, what I ended up doing was I switched providers um, and um, because he, this other provider really connected to some of the hopes that I had and values that I really wanted to honor for that second birth. And you know what? That second belly birth was so healing for that first birth. My first birth, it's so interesting. My scar for that first birth, what, it ended up keloiding and it was red and painful, like physically to the touch. Um, and for that second birth, the doctor literally had to cut off that first scar because it was so thick and angry. And I think it really represented um, the pain and trauma of that first birth. And that second birth, I just remember at the end of the day, I was actually very grateful for that second belly birth experience to be in that same operating room, that same very bright and it feels cold room. Um, and to have a whole nother experience where I got to, um, this time, cause the first time I wasn't able to even open my eyes and, and really even look at my, my daughter when she was born. And that was also difficult. Um, but for that, second birth, to be able to be more present, um, to be able to know, understand what was happening and that everything that was happening was to keep me and my baby safe, the, how cold it was in there, how bright it was, um, to be able to do a little bit of pseudo skin to skin, cheek to cheek. I mean, there were so many elements that ended up actually being very healing for that first experience. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the experience. And, and I look at my scars now, like my scar that second time, it healed so much differently. It's so interesting how our body, when our body goes through really intense traumatic experiences, how healing even in, in a scar can look different, you know? Um, right. And I look at that scar now as, you know, this beautiful place in which my body opened up for my children to come into this world, but that took time to get there. So if somebody's listening to us share these stories right now and they're like, gosh, I can't even, I'm still in the space of feeling like my body has failed me, um, or, you know, still, I still have a really hard time looking back or remembering. I mean, this, I, I, I'm a therapist and I had to go to therapy. I actually did EMDR, um, which is a, evidence-based trauma approach to really process my experience. And so if anyone's listening right now and when they look back on their birth, they're like, okay, I think that that would, that's, that was, that was traumatizing for me, um, or for my partner because partners can experience that too. Um, 
then I just want to give you a giant hug, virtual hug, and to let that person know, whoever's listening, that you deserve support and um, you deserve to process that experience so that you can get to the space of seeing how strong your body is and um, and and to understand what you experienced as well. So, yeah, I think that, you know, therapy can be really helpful in the process of processing your birth. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, Something I know I did too that really helped is kind of externalizing it on paper and writing out my birth story, every single little detail and feeling that I had instead of having it, you know, internalized inside of me and inside of my, you know, body, I could actually, you know, put it out there in the universe and say, this was my story and I owned it. And that's something that really helped to, you know, after the first couple of months of kind of like the grief in the morning. And, you know, once I got out of that, it was a really good way, a therapeutic way that I could do at home, at least, um, you know, to, to, to help some of that process along. Um, so that was also helpful, but, um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, postpartum and having multiple children. (laughs) Now I laugh because looking back when I first had my second, I wanted to just scream to the world. Why didn't anyone tell me having two children was going to be so hard? (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, the first couple months was, I was definitely in some sort of a fog, you know, I just, you know, sleepless nights and, you know, hormonal imbalances and, and so forth. And just, you know, 24 seven, but Um, but it was, it was really hard on a lot of different levels. And I remember thinking and seeing people with, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven children thinking, how are they doing it? Because I just have two and it was a really hard transition. Um, when I had my second, um, because one of the main reasons was because my daughter was three when my son was born and, I just remember thinking I felt so guilty for not spending time with her or I was too tired or I, you know, I was still obviously recovering from, you know, my belly birth, you know, that time too. And, um, I don't know. I, I just, why is it so hard? Why is that a <laughs> period so hard? Um, and what has your experience been like, you know, you're now, this is your third child. Um, but what, what was that experience like, you know, the second time and now the third time of, being in a postpartum, you know, period, but then also having two other children to take care of. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a different experience because with the first, the first one, I mean, let me say this, the first time around what's hard, what was hard for me the first time was one, um, we didn't go in as prepared as we did the second and third time. Um, but also you don't, I didn't have the perspective that I ended up getting after the first that like those hard, like I remember the first having moments where I'm like, Oh my gosh, like, what did we do? Like our life is never going to be the same. I'm never going to have that like flexibility and freedom again. I'm, and you just feel like you're never going to feel connected to those parts of yourself again. And what I eventually found was that I would rediscover those parts of myself, right? My identity as a friend, as a partner, as a therapist, as a businesswoman, I was able to connect with those parts of myself again. But sometimes when you're in that fog in the beginning, it's, and you're just in the thick of it, it's hard and you don't have that perspective that comes with like your baby getting older and more independent and sleeping through the night. Like it's so hard with that first in the, for the, for those are some of the reasons why. Um, and then with this, 
second, so, but with the first, it's just the baby, right? So like, you know, if the baby goes to sleep, you know, at seven, you have a little bit of time or, or even earlier during naps, you can rest potentially, um, you know, and so that's nice and you're not chasing around a toddler. But then with the second, not only are you still recovering from birth and navigating becoming a food source or all the challenges of breastfeeding and you're sleep deprived. But not only are you doing that with a baby now, but you potentially have a toddler or an older child that still needs you, right? And there's also the grief that comes with, you know, being used to having the time, space, energy, and attention for just that one child. And I know for me, there was grief that I felt about the fact that I no longer just had that special, just me and that one kid, you know, um, and that relationship. And, and, and I will say that over time, you just see how your heart grows and expands. Um, but it was hard at first. I felt grief and then I felt guilt that I was feeling like grief because I should, I should just be grateful to have this healthy baby. Right. Um, I've experienced, um, pregnancy loss too. So I was thinking, you know, I remember thinking to myself, like, just be grateful that this baby's heartbeat is beating and that this is a healthy baby, um, that, you know, has made it to, is in your arms right now, you know, and gosh, but it was such a hard transition. Um, my, my oldest, um, who, you know, so that first, that first time when I had, you know, to that second child and went through that transition, um, she really struggled. She was three. And I think that, um, now looking back, knowing my child who I knew then, and I know even more deeply now as someone who's just very empathic, but also sensitive to her, the world around her and her sensory experience, um, having a little newborn, that's like a ticking time bomb of crying and lots of noise and, um, is, yeah, it it was very difficult for her as a child who's sensitive to the world around her in those ways. And I think that, um, you know, what I tell families now is, you know, your child. So like when you think about the unique features of your child, maybe your child, um, really struggles with sharing you or sharing toys, right. Um, or struggles during, um, big trans, big transitions or struggles with separation or is really sensitive to their sensory experience. So they're sensitive to sounds or they're, they seem really impacted when a people around them have big feelings. Um, so really tuning into your child. Cause I think that if I had, I know that if I had done that, cause I did it now for the our third and it really helped with the transition, but knowing each of my individual children and, and, and knowing from past experiences, how they might experience this new big transition, it really helped me prepare them this third time. And I think that, um, it would have really helped my daughter, um, that first time that she became a big sister. Cause I think that what we ended up saying a lot of was like, Oh my gosh, aren't you so excited? And like, that's the thing that everybody would say to her, like, you're a big sister now. How exciting. Like, don't you love your little brother? And what that did is it didn't leave enough room for her to say, I don't know if I like this very much or this hard, you know, and she was three. So she probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it in those words. But what, 
what I wish that I would have done and what we eventually did once we got some support um, with a family therapist that really helped us because we were, she was really struggling and therefore we all were. Um, what we ended up um, doing was asking her questions that uh, created space for her, for her to know that it's okay to, to not love this, right? And to be struggling and like that it's okay to name those things and that we're here for you to acknowledge those feelings and to help you understand them. And so to be able to say something like, you know what? I remember, cause I'm the oldest too. I remember, I could have said this to her. Like, I remember when I first got a little brother, you know, a part of me was excited. Um, but there's also a part of me that was sad that I had to share my parents' attention. And there's a part of me that was kind of angry that I didn't get to do all the things I wanted to because we were home a lot. And I wonder, do you ever feel those things? You know, so just sort of connecting and opening up this, opening up space to have those conversations. Um, Because the truth is, is that we're I did change our lives, right? Like we're not going to the zoo every day and um, we're home a lot and mom and dad are really tired and, um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's disruptive um, to how family life used to feel. And I think just holding space for that is so, so important. And it can just become such a beautiful opportunity to connect with your older child. I know that for me, once we started to have those conversations, I felt closer to her. And so that grief that I was feeling around, um, you know, not no longer just having it be just her as our only child that started to, to sort of fade away because I was connecting to her in a way that was still hard. Right. But I was opening up conversations that were really important. Um, and I think that, you know, as a parent, it can be really hard when you see your older child, maybe even like say, like, I, like, I hate the baby or I don't want this baby anymore. Um, but to, as a parent to not be scared of that, like, no, your child, your child is, doesn't, isn't going, it doesn't hate the baby. Your child is having some big feelings about this big transition, you know, and right. that's, totally understandable. And there can actually be a really beautiful opportunity to connect during a time when you might feel that grief of um, that big transition too. It's a beautiful opportunity to connect with your older child. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge, it can be a very huge transition that can really rock the family system. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of that, we've been focusing a lot on, you know, mom and the transition between, let's say even the first child and maybe to the second or even third child. What about marital satisfaction? How does postpartum affect marital satisfaction and um, the couple dyad? Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, research, um, John and Julie Gottman, they've done decades of research, um, as I know you're familiar with. And Mm -hmm. from the research that they found, um, but other research as well has all pointed to the fact that um, partner satisfaction can really be impacted at one point during the family life cycle. And that point tends to be around the time that they have kids. And the struggle is that you hope that having a baby is going to just bring you and your partner closer. I mean, um, you know, whether, whether it's a part, a baby that the two of you, um, created together, um, or that you adopted, whatever the case might be, however, this baby came into your life, into your world, your hope is that it's going to bring you closer. Um, 
But what ends up happening is, um, you know, you are, well, in the very beginning, you are sleep deprived and sleep deprivation is a beast and impacts our ability to communicate effectively. Like we are not our best selves when we're sleep deprived. So that's going to throw a wrench into things. Um, you're also having less time and space to repair if you do find yourselves, um, having conflict or struggling, you're going to have less time and space for connection and intimacy is going to be challenged. Um, if one of the partners is breastfeeding, um, and the partner that gave birth, it can definitely impact, um, libido and you can just, both parents can feel really touched out. Um, it's just really hard on partner relationships. And on top of that, now you have all these big parenting decisions in front of you now for the next, for the rest of your life, you know, but there's decisions even early on, um, in terms of, you know, how are we going to respond when the baby um, is crying at night? And like, how are we going to help our baby get sleep? Like there's so many decisions to make as a couple and these parenting decisions can bring what we bring into these conversations tends to be a lot of old luggage from our old, from our, our own families of origin. And so you know, now we're navigating that as a couple, um, maybe for the first time. And these things are kind of coming to a head in terms of parenting styles and these sort of things. And then there's also, you know, boundaries can get really, um, challenging around once you become a parent, because now maybe, um, your in-laws are now grandparents. And so mm-hmm. that can put an extra stressor <laughs> on things and can intensify thing, issues that may have already been there potentially with extended family. There's just so many elements of why it can be difficult. Um, and this is why in our prepared postpartum course, we created it for partners. Um, so we have, for instance, lessons in there just for the partner who's not giving birth and then talking about how to prepare the couple relationship, how to, um, how to, how to prepare your extended family for this big transition, because, you know, it's just, it, it really is a big stressor in the family system, but we don't want it to be. We don't expect it to be. We just want this baby to be something that brings us all closer together. And then when it, and not to say that you won't have those moments of just looking at each other, like, whoa, look what we get to do now in raising this child, this beautiful child. Those beautiful moments will be there, but we don't need to prepare for those beautiful moments. Right. What we need to prepare for is those harder moments, which might be really unexpected, and I, what I know from a lot of couples is that um, because this doesn't get talked about enough, couples then feel a lot of shame around the fact that they're maybe struggling. Um, and so that might keep them from taking a step to get support um, or to seek out, you know, therapy. Um, and so, or to talk about it with other people. And so that shame can keep these couples really struggling in silence for far too long, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And I know, you know, my husband and I had a fair share of, you know, struggles with, you know, the things that you've mentioned. Um, it's hard. I don't really know a couple, honestly, that hasn't struggled with, um, with something postpartum, um, and their, and their marital satisfaction. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great to seek support, um, you know, for those things because, um, everyone needs support as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm I'm a strong believer in that everyone needs support. Everyone needs someone to talk to, everyone needs support. And, um, and that's why I'm so glad we're doing this today is because I hope, um, 
that it really helps someone who's listening out there um, that could really use, um, you know, especially like you said, during the times of right now, especially I know when I first became um, a mom, I felt very socially isolated and, um, you know, and that was well before the pandemic, you know, and up at different hours of the night when everyone else was sleeping and um, just not finding a, a ways to connect with other people that were going through the same things as me. And of course, I know earlier in the conversation, we talked a little bit about, um, postpartum depression and anxiety. What are some of the differences between knowing that you just have, let's say the blues or if it's, you know, mm. diagnosable, um, you know, more depression or anxiety and, you know, what are some of the signs and symptoms moms can look for? Or even dads, you mentioned your husband, you know, um, yeah. had some of that too. So um, for, for either partner, uh, what would you suggest? And what are, like I said, some signs and symptoms that they could look for? Yeah. Yeah. So baby blues impacts around 70 to 80% of, um, of, of new parents in the postpartum period. And what's the way that you can identify that this is baby blues versus depression, postpartum depression or anxiety is that baby blues can show up in those first two weeks and it can be hard. Don't get me wrong. You could have mood swings, anxiety, um, you could have ir- you could feel irritable, just feel overwhelmed. Um, you can have difficult time concentrating. You can notice that it's hard to sleep even when the baby is sleeping. Um, but it goes away on its own, typically after those first two weeks. Um, if it doesn't go away on its own, if you find yourself having, um, you know, a more severe mood swings or feeling depressed, um, or having anger and rage. I think that rage and anger is a symptom of postpartum depression and anxiety that we don't talk about enough, but needs to be acknowledged, um, as a real symptom of these experiences. Um, if you find yourself really withdrawing, um, from family and friends, having a hard time bonding with your baby. But even, I think that, you know, a lot of times when we hear of PPD, postpartum depression, we think of a mom that, you know, doesn't feel connected connected to their baby or is having thoughts of harming their baby or thoughts of harming themselves. Now, these can be real symptoms and these, of course, require immediate um, support and action. Um, But you can be, you can feel totally connected to your baby, have none of those thoughts and still be struggling with postpartum depression. So I think that's an important thing to acknowledge. Um, but there can be, um, hopelessness, um, feelings of worthlessness, shame, guilt, um, is it for anxiety? This can be, um, you know, having a lot of intrusive thoughts, really scary thoughts to the point that it impacts your functioning. Um, and so, and it can impact other things and there can be physical symptoms. So it can impact, you know, you could have stomach aches, headaches, muscle aches. It can impact, um, your appetite. Um, and again, concentration and sleep as well. And so when we find ourselves experiencing these symptoms and it's impacting our functioning, um, and it's, you know, it's gone beyond those two weeks and it's impacting your functioning. I, I just, anyone who's listening to this, who's find, finds themselves in that space, I really hope that you take a step to get support. Uh, Postpartum Support International is a really great resource, Kim, that has a directory where people can find, um, therapists and support groups. And a lot of this is being offered virtually right now. So it's still accessible and still an option. Um, and you can find this in your area through that directory, um, and to not wait to get support, to not wait. And so that impacts around, 
between 10 and 20% of um, the parent who gave birth. And then in terms of the not the, the parent who did not give birth, um, whether that's dads or any partner, they're also at risk. Um, and so um, in terms of the specific research looking at dads, around um, one in 10 dads is at risk for postpartum depression um, after their baby is born. And um, that while we need more research to look at same-sex couples, um, my from the research that I have read, this definitely can impact the non-birthing partner as well um, in same-sex relationships too. And you know, for my partner, um, what was what's, what was unique for him is that. I was being assessed, thankfully. Um, my doctor and our pediatrician were checking in on me. But then people would turn, providers would turn to my partner and say, and, you know, hey, are you getting up in the middle of the night? Are you stepping up and helping her? And the truth is, is that he was struggling and nobody was asking him, how are you doing? Instead, there was just sort of this like more pressure and expectation, which just made him feel worse because he was having a hard time helping me and functioning. Um, and so, you know, and depression and anxiety for part, the, the um, support partner can look very similar. Um, it doesn't have to look different, but it can look different. It can look like withdrawal. It can look like anger and irritability. It can look like um, different sort of withdrawing behaviors, substance use, um, spending more time at work, difficulty concentrating, but it can also look like, um, you know, mood swings and sadness, hopelessness, feelings of worthlessness, shame, guilt, um, impacting appetite and all of these things. And so both partners need support and deserve support. And that is like my ultimate, like that is my biggest mission. That is like my, my big why Kim for why I do the work I do. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful work. Um, you're helping a lot of people out there. So, um, I think it's wonderful. Thank you for that resource. And I know you're obviously a great resource. Um, and at the end, I want to share with everyone where they can find you. Um, but I just have one more question. Um, when, when, Someone needs help and someone needs support. It's, it's hard to ask for that sometimes. It's, it's hard to ask whether it's a partner or a friend, a family member, especially like you said, during these times, we have to get pretty creative sometimes and who we, you know, let into our pandemic um, pod or, you know, our, our quarantine circle. Um, so what do you recommend for someone who may not have a lot of those out in external supports, um, or even inside the home, how do you suggest someone asks for help and where should they get it? Yeah. So I think that first we want to identify, um, looking at our entire support network, right? Um, and so this, this is beyond, this is, you know, yes, people that are in your immediate family, extended family, also looking though at your friend, friendship network, um, looking at people maybe that you have in other, that you are connected to in other areas of your life that maybe you haven't been really close with, but now, now that you're a parent, you're like, well, you know what, that, that one coworker, she also recently had a baby. Um, maybe this is someone I can reach out to. So really taking stock first of your total network, right? Like all the people in your life that you are connected to or could be potentially connecting to in a deeper way. And then once you take stock, I want, it's important to consider 
each of these people, like who, who, who do you want to bring into the inner circle? Because not everybody has earned the right to be in that inner circle of support, right? Like there might be some people that you really wish would be in that inner circle. Like maybe you really wish that your sister or your mom or that one friend could be in that inner circle. And what we might do is just continuously try to get support from them, but we keep getting let down. What I think can happen is if we acknowledge that, you know what, this is somebody that is in my life, um, but they might not be able to show up for me in the way that I really need during this vulnerable season of my life. Well, you know, I can acknowledge what it is that they can do and what they can't um, for me and what I deserve. But what that can do though, Kim, is it can allow us to open up space to see who the people that have just been waiting in the wings, right? The people that are there that can show up for us in the way that we need them to. And so once we identify who those people are, it's looking at, okay, what, what, what are some things that each of these people can uniquely bring, um, to offer support during this time? Like maybe there's that friend that, you know, will just keep it real, you know, and that you can be really vulnerable with. And then maybe there's that family member, that person that, you know, can always make you laugh and it can just really help bring, um, light to your life and can also, um, you know, help you remember these old parts of your identity, you know, and that's a person that you want to reach out to when that's something that you're seeking. Um, and then maybe there's a person that, you know, is just really good at making really nourishing meals, you know, or who has the resources to, um, support the family financially. If there's, if you need groceries or you, you want, um, somebody to help pay for, um, a cleaning service, you know, um, or for childcare. Um, so it's really looking at, each of these people that you are now bringing into your identifying as being part of your inner circle and inner support network and identifying the unique roles that each one could have. Um, and this takes time and energy to really kind of look at instead of just thinking, well, I don't have any supports or there's nobody around. Well, let's, let's, we have to get more creative, you know, and identify who is in your life, who, who could we identify as being in the inner circle and what are some creative ways that we could ask these specific individuals for support. And then we have to ask, and I know that people have a hard time asking for help, but at the end of the day, um, especially during this pandemic, when a lot of people can't really show up physically, I know that if there was someone that I really cared about, um, and they had had a baby and they reached out to me and they were like, Cassidy, you are someone that I consider in my inner circle. And I am struggling with X, Y, or Z, and what I could really use from you is X, Y, or Z. I would feel so honored, and it would feel like there was something that I could do when what I really would love to do is be there and to hold the baby, but maybe I can't because of the pandemic. But if they identified to me, like, hey, it'd be really helpful for me if you maybe checked in on me like once a week, just like like reach out to me and like ask me how I'm doing. Like, cause I might be in the thick of it and might not think to let you know how I'm doing, but will you just check in on me? Like, yes. And I would be honored to do that. Um, or if someone reached out and said, you know what, we don't have anyone delivering any food on Friday and we've been, we really love this one dish that you make. Could you drop that off? I would be mm-hmm. like, yes. And I'm so grateful that you named exactly what you needed for me. Cause unfortunately, as much as I know that I would, I wish and others wish that people would just show up. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they don't 
they don't, or they don't know mm-hmm. how to show up, or they don't even realize that we need the support. Um, and so if you're listening to this and you are someone who could support someone, then please, by all means, reach out and ask for, ask one, how are you doing really? Cause I think mm-hmm. that we can add that really to really check in on people. And then two say, I want to support you. Can I do this? Right. Or can you tell me exactly what day I could drop a meal off? Or is there something specific that I could do for you? Or just name what it is that you are willing and able to do. Right. And then listen to the person you're trying to support because they might have some preferences, right? Like (laughs) they don't want visitors or maybe they, um, they do want you to come over, but they don't want you to hold the baby. They want you to help with the dishes and the laundry. So listen to that. And if you are the person who needs support, name it because otherwise it's, we can get lost in translation of ways that we can really be showing up for each other. Absolutely. And it, and it is hard. Um, it's taken me a long time to be able to ask for help for others. And to be honest, in whatever I've been going through, whether it's postpartum or you know other life challenges and I've needed support during those times, um, to be honest, I've been surprised who's shown up and who hasn't. And yeah. it wasn't people that I thought would be the one showing up. Um, in a crunch sometimes maybe, but, um, but there was times where I just sought the help and I just would send a text to someone. And to be honest, the couple people that said, yes, I I was surprised. I thought, wow, okay, this is great. You know, and then other people that didn't, it was a little disappointing at first, but, um, but it's just interesting that, that I had when in those times, I realized that I did have a bigger network than I actually thought I did. And there was even times that I would, I would be scrolling through social media and I'd find someone that either just had a baby or just went through something, like I said, that I, that had, I'd gone through. And I just sent them a message on on social media. I didn't know who they were. They didn't know who I was. Um, but I reached out and I just took that that risk, that chance, and said, "Hey, can I just ask you a quick question about you know I'm going through this. I know you just had a baby, and you know you might be experiencing something similar, or maybe you're not, or." you know, not only could create new friendships, but it also just might need that support. And there's people, like I said, that I've reached out to that are virtually strangers, but we've connected on a much deeper level than some of the friends I've had for many years. Um, because, you know, things are kept more on a social level or may, you know, more, um, um, you know, surface level. And some of the people I've, (laughs) I've, um, you know, poured my heart out to um, some of these strangers on Instagram because we're literally going through the same struggles and can really understand and know exactly what we're going through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, social media can be such a double-edged sword. It can be such a a challenging space of comparing our real lives to the other, to the highlight reels that are shared on social media, but it can also be such a beautiful space to bridge connection, to find resources and, um, yeah, so I think that we have to sort of keep all of it in mind that, um, you know, okay, gosh, I've been scrolling now for 15 minutes and I'm feeling worse than when I started. Well, maybe, maybe I got to turn off the app, you know, but also to be in- intentional in if you feel, find yourself feeling connected to somebody, um, to reach out and then maybe get off the apps, like maybe, you know, find a way to be able to, to text each other or to FaceTime and get that, those real, real live connections. Yeah, exactly. So, Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Where where can um, everyone find you? Will you let us know where would be best to find you and get some more resources from you? 
Yeah. So I'm on social media, <laughs> the double-edged sword, right? That's, uh, there, there's resources and it can be also a challenging space, but I am on the app um, offering resources, content almost every day um, at Dr. Cassidy. And I have um, two courses for um, postpartum parents. Or So I have one that's called Prepared Postpartum and I created it with an OBGYN. Um, and that's to prepare couples for all of the things all the things that you might not think to prepare for, but that are actually the most important things to prepare for when it comes to postpartum identity, partner relationships, um, the emotions of feeding, processing your birth, all those things. And then we have a course also called Flourish in the First Year, which is for those folks who find themselves in the thick of it and they need a lifeline and they need that support. Um, and then I also have a podcast called Holding Space, uh, where I share conversations similar to this, um, uh, a lot of topics related to postpartum and parenting. And um, so, yeah, those are probably the, the main places to find me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening today. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and or your other preferred podcast platforms. You don't miss any of our shows and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye, Dr. Cassidy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kim. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.